Today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 25. That's the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under the chair in front of you and open it to page 903. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of you. And uh, like we saw in the pictures, many, if not most of you, are sore today. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking that if there's any time to attack the church, today would be the day. I was reminded of um, when Simeon and Levi would go in after the men in Shechem were sore and killed them all. There, it was a different kind of sore, but we did Genesis together, so I'm sure you, all of you know. But, you know, when we do fellowship and things like that together, it's always a joy. I hope more of you can join. Again, there were different levels of, uh, you know, intensity, so people can join at whatever level they're at. I think we're going to have it again, right, Brian? That's why we hired you, apparently? All right, so we're looking forward to that. Also, you may have noticed that we have physical bulletins. Um, by next week, what I want to do is, like, you may have come here and the first three songs that we sang, you had no idea what these songs were. So I want to have some score sheets so if you can read music and you're not familiar with the songs, you could at least read the music and sing along with us that way. And so we'll also have that and you have physical bulletins in front of you in case you can't access our website slash Sunday for the online bulletin. So looking forward to that. A lot of exciting developments in our church, and I thank you all for continuing to pray as we uh, continue to worship God. And now as we enter into this time of listening to the word, let's pray. O God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. Pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're on chapter 14 of the first letter to the Corinthians. And as we've been going over, this was a letter that Paul wrote employing every teaching method you could think of. He was gentil at times, harsh at others, and even sarcastic, ironic. He used hyperbole. He took great care in his instruction. Uh, 
where you would see that every single word that was written had weight. Why? Because he truly loved this congregation in Corinth. I wonder if you see that often these days, this kind of love. A predominant view of love now is to be tolerant and accepting of whatever the other person wishes or wants. They will claim that only then are you truly loving them. And this, of course, is untrue. When the people you love are doing things that are harmful to themselves or others, when they are going down this dangerous path, how many methods would you employ to warn, correct, or chastise them? What would, what would stop you from your, from your beckoning call to them to wake up from their delusion? Would you stop praying for them? Would you stop thinking about them? Would you stop caring for them? You know, it said that Paul, after he sent this first letter, would constantly ask for updates on the Corinthians. Did they receive it? How did they receive it? Did they read it? Did they repent? Did they turn back? Because God used the Apostle Paul to reflect his heart on his church. And when you recognize this, you recognize and then you ponder the width, the length, the height, and depth of God's love. In Ephesians 3, it says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know, a pastor friend of mine was sharing with me his frustrations as a pastor and the dealings he had to go through with his own church members. And then I was, as he was sharing, he would ask me if I had any tough experiences with this church, if I had tough experiences with this church right here. And do you know how I answered? I said, of course not. This church is absolutely perfect. Nothing like the Corinthians. <clears throat> uh, so, but I honestly could... But honestly, I could only think of how proud I was of all of you as we've been going through 1 Corinthians. But of course, I know that some parts weren't easy. I know that some of you struggle with some portions of this letter. But where else could we turn to for relief? If the Holy Spirit convicts us through His Word, where else could I turn to other than the Holy Spirit and His Word? And I think that's the basic sentiment I have seen from all of you as well. I thank the Lord for this church, and I pray for you daily. My wife and I pray for you every night, and the elders and I pray for you every time we gather. My hope is that as we continue to study not only 1 Corinthians, but the whole Bible in our lifetimes, however long that's going to be, that we will grow daily in Christ, maturing to be godly adults, unified in the love that he has given us through his Son, Jesus Christ, until we are made like him, sanctified to be holy. I mean, that's the dream. That's the dream. And so today I'll be sharing on verses 20 to 25 of chapter 14, and I've split chapter 14 into four parts because it's basically talking about one thing. 
In the letter to the Corinthians, he goes over the long list of issues that the church in Corinth faced. But in chapter 14, he takes the time out to correct their misuse and perversion of the gift of tongues or languages, what they would call glossolalia. Now there is a true gift of tongues that existed in the New Testament times. It was the ability to speak in a known language, but was unknown to the person speaking it. However, however, there was always someone that understood the language, and God had a purpose for it, which we will be studying this morning. The people of Corinth, but, but the people of Corinth, though, would take this true gift this true gift of languages, and subvert, pervert it for their own purposes. They would mix in paganistic traditions and religions with their worship practices from even chapter 11 and on. But now in this particular gift, they would confuse it with babble and ecstatic speech. This is not a Christian practice, but a pagan one they would adopt the platonic notion of ecstasy or a frenzied state that when you slip into, you would be slipping into a divine state. Practices like that still happen today where these frenzied states in some charismatic circles have gone to levels of madness. Perhaps, perhaps though, it's just evil masqueraded. I saw one video recently of something very disturbing. In one church, someone, we, we saw someone practicing something called nibbling. Apparently, someone was filled with the Holy Spirit, or so they believed, and it caused them to jump on another man's neck and nibble it. Um, where are the other leaders of this movement that support the charismatic church? Why are they not coming out to expressly condemn this sort of behavior in their churches? This is pure perversion, and it is evil. This has no place among Christians, and especially not in the sacred space of corporate worship. But a common response that I hear from the people that are doing these things is that they're defending them, saying that they are genuinely seeking God and they want an experience with Him. They'll even say things like, even if that experience was 10% God and 90% human, it was 10% that they never had before. Because these are just lay people. But the people saying this and defending that aren't just lay people. These are the highest churches of this movement. They won't condemn these practices because even if it wasn't good, they'll say the worst, worst case scenario, you know, we just gotta practice these things and if we fail, it's like a business, you should be able to fail. Because the worst case scenario they say is, you may look a little stupid. This is not true. The worst case scenario isn't that you look a little stupid. The best case scenario is that you look a little stupid. The worst case is you have blasphemed the God who has clearly stated in his word how he ought to be worshipped. We do not adopt pagan practices in Christian services. 
And we saw that happening in Corinth 2,000 years as well. They believed that they were in this ecstatic speech with this glossolalia, that they would be communing with God and therefore believe that this supernatural phenomenon was this self-edifying act of devotion to God. And Paul does away with this notion that the Corinthians had adopted so regularly. And he gives three main points over the course of this chapter to show what the gift of tongue is. The last two weeks I've gone over the place of tongue. The place of tongue is that it is secondary. It goes behind the gift of prophecy, which we have learned means to speak or proclaim the word of God. And because the canon is closed, to prophecy now would mean to preach correctly what the scriptures say. And in the explanation of the place of tongues being secondary, he dispels the idea that tongue can be gibberish. That just as the bugle is played, that it must be played with clarity of purpose, otherwise you have mayhem in the battlefield. Now in these next verses, Paul will go on from explaining the place of tongues to the purpose of tongues. And next week we will go over the final portion of this chapter, which talks about the protocol or the methods of proper usage of this gift. And as we, study to, as we continue to study the Word of God, we see that God is not a God of chaos. He doesn't throw us out into the wild and tell us, out, tell us to just figure it out. Figure out how you, to please me. Figure out how to worship me. No one reading the whole Bible would ever come to that conclusion because God has a design for his church and even for the gift that he endows that church with. This second point, the purpose of tongues, is vital for us to know in the study of this chapter. If we understand the purpose of something, then we can see if it's being properly used or not. If I understand that the purpose of a hammer is a tool that helps with construction, something commonly used to hammer in nails or the like, then I can clearly state that when someone would use a hammer to hit someone else over the head, that they are in the wrong. The purpose of gifts or languages then that we are taught is that it is a sign. So right out of the gate, we know that if someone says that it is for some kind of personal edification or personal devotion, that that is wrong. A reading and studying of the previous 19 verses in this chapter will show that to you. But this is what many, if not most people, in the charismatic movement will say that it is. Nowhere in the Bible does it affirm that this sort of thinking does it affirm this sort of thinking? And the only place that people will cite to defend it is in verse 4. But verse 4 is an indictment on those that think that they could use it for a personal edifying gift or for selfish motives. Because the whole purpose of spiritual gifts then is to edify the other. The whole purpose of a spiritual gift is to edify the church. It's to serve the church. All of chapter 13 would be an indictment on those that will build the self rather than the larger church body. 
because that's not what love is. And we will in fact see that the other places in the Bible that tongues are mentioned, it is an indictment on the people, and we'll get to that. But the Corinthians were speaking this ecstatic speech, and they sincerely believed it was from God. And Paul is saying that the truth of the matter is that gifts are for building up the church, and you are, though, building up the self. And this kind of praying, then, is fruitless or useless, as he mentions in verse 14. Even if they really did have the true gift of tongues, then what really edifies was the gift of interpretation. That should be sought out then. That instead should be elevated. But that's not what they were doing. They weren't elevating interpretation. They were elevating tongues. Because our purpose in prayer isn't so we become mindless in our utterances, but rather pray for that we can get an amen for those from those around us. But we can get an amen from those around us as we read in the previous verses. That means our prayers must be intelligible and understood. That's what edifies. Again, the purpose of any spiritual gift is to edify the church. And even when the Lord taught us to pray, there wasn't any gibberish, there was no ecstatic speech. Rather, we saw a clear model of theology doctrine, which means just the right way and a holy view of God being proclaimed and pronounced with our needs articulated in a fashion that rightly communicated our submission to his will. After hearing this, then there are some that will concede, then sure, it's not for personal edification, but what about, what about evangelism? There are some in distant lands with a distant people who spoke in a language that they didn't understand. Couldn't God just give this gift so that you can communicate the gospel to them? In fact, I have even heard of claims, even within this circle, that this is happening now. I have no reason to deny that God can do something miraculous in perhaps a very crucial situation out of sheer grace. But you have never seen an instance like that happening in the New Testament. What about Acts 2? This was an instance when they all spoke in languages and the people understood it as their own. The Jewish diaspora were gathered in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit fell on the believers and they what? They spoke in the languages that were gathered there. What did they speak? They were declaring the mighty works of God. In the Jewish world, world that phrase meant that they were speaking God's works throughout their history in their own tongue. What happened then is that when this happens, people's attentions are grabbed. And then they gathered. And then what happened? Peter would then stand up and give the sermon in Acts 2. That's when they were cut to the heart. What the Lord used to change the hearts of the people was then the proclamation of the word of God. So you don't have an illustration of someone speaking in tongues to actually evangelize. 
It was something done to gather the people so that they could evangelize, meaning preach the gospel. If anything, it's like a pre-evangelism. And on that note, once 3,000 people believed and were baptized, do you know how many were recorded to speak in tongues? Zero. Because it's not to be equated with the filling of the Holy Spirit. They are not synonymous. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul Paul says that in one spirit, that means by the Holy Spirit, we were baptized into one body. That means the Holy Spirit brings every believer into the body of Christ. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. There is no exception. And then did all of them speak in tongue? The answer is obviously no. We see Paul make that point in verse 30 of chapter 12. Do all speak in tongue? It's a rhetorical device to show that not everyone had the same gifts. And so then, if this is a sign, and it's not for evangelism, or that you've been given or filled with the Spirit, if it's not for personal edification, What is the purpose of this gift? In verse 20, it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Again, Paul starts off with brothers as a gentle address before he lays down the hammer, but it's a gentle address. Don't be children in your thinking. What is this addressing? Well, the verse before where they thought that they could speak gibberish or ecstatic speech, they thought that it was something to covet and desire. The emotion-filled but mindless prattle was rampant in the church service, and that's what Paul was condemning. And he says that's like thinking on a childish level. And people might respond, well, I just like it. You know, it makes me feel good. That's precisely what he's addressing. It's childish thinking. In fact, the misuse of these gifts wasn't just simply childish. It was evil. And if you're going to be childish in something, he's saying be even more childish than that. Be even more younger and be infantile in evil. An infant doesn't know the inner workings of anything. They just know what they want and what they don't want. So when it comes to evil, it's good to be infantile in that regard. I'm going to pause right here because I like that a lot. I like that a lot. You don't need to try every evil to know it's evil. This is a surefire way to get you in trouble. No one wise says, let me dabble in a little murder. So I know why murder is wrong. And yet for other evils, we don't see a similar connection being made. Let me try a little of this. Let me try a little of that. While I'm young, I should be able to do this. But it says, Paul is exhorting his listeners, his readers, be infantile when it comes to evil. And I think this is a very wise note to make in your life. However, even though you're infantile and evil, be adults when it comes to your thinking, 
when it comes to engaging your mind. Because when you don't engage your mind, you only care about the emotional and self-gratification, the self-edification. You build the ego and you ignore the rest of the family of God. You don't want to be corrected. You don't want the teaching of the Word of God. And then you end up with chaos. Everyone doing whatever they want to do, deciding how to interpret, and every ecstatic experience on their own terms. You make up your own scales and determining factors and to verify some kind of experience to say, oh, that was 10% God and 90% human. I guarantee you, if that's how you assess spiritual experiences, it's never something like 10%. You want the real number? The real number is negative three, okay? It's pervasive in our culture today where we build up just well, we put up just arbitrary numbers and we think we're being intellectual. We see people now just yelling arbitrary control measures for even COVID spread and just yell it's science when someone else shows countervailing evidence of its effectiveness. It's science, you know. That just means to shut up. I have urged time and time again for our people here to continue to read and study, especially when it concerns the welfare excuse me, welfare of your children. Just don't take some bureaucrat's word for it. The time for that has clearly passed. I'll give you one quick example. In 2016, the HRC, that stands for the Human Rights Campaign, America's largest LGBT group, would threaten Johns Hopkins for publishing a report that homosexuality and transgenderism is not genetic. People railed against the university and its faculty for having the impudence to even suggest that the LGBTQ community are not born this way. In 2019, by the way, no one touched that study from Johns Hopkins with a 10-foot pole because they're afraid of the backlash. In 2019, Nathaniel Frank would write a feature in the Washington Post celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. He would go on in that article to say, inherent in queer desire is the belief that sexual pleasure is a good in itself and need not be justified by reproductive ends, a principle enshrined in law by gay rights court decisions affirming that sex and marriage are not instruments for reproduction, but expressions of individual liberty and dignity. This flies in the face against the telos of sex that we've been given in the Bible, because what he is saying is sex is really about pleasure, and everybody has the right to receive pleasure in the way they want. And further down then, he would make this audacious claim, in the article, Stonewall's legacy isn't just about making queer people look more like everyone else. It's also perhaps more mutinously about making everyone else look a little bit more queer. That's the goal. That's the agenda. It's right there in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Washington Post article. Now it's 2016, 2019, last week, the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir 
put out a song titled A Message from the Gay Community. Now I talked about what kind of what kind of role music plays. So if you play like a certain thing, like a barbershop quartet, the feelings that you get. Now this melody was played as a victory anthem. So if you've heard it, it plays like a victory anthem, but it starts off with these lyrics. And I'm gonna read the lyrics of this song. You think we're sinful. You fight against our rights. You say we all lead lives you can't respect, but you're just frightened. You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked. And funny, just this once, you're correct. We'll convert your children, happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it. And the chorus is this, we're coming for them, we're coming for your children, we're coming for them, we're coming for them, we're coming for your children, for your children. It's a pretty simple chorus, but that, that's, a, that's the song. It's a song directly going against the ordained order of God, and they know it. The very first words of that song is in reference to sin, meaning they know that this, they know who they are fighting against. They know who they are targeting. Later on, because of their, this, uh, there was tremendous pushback, they took down the video, but as of last night, I saw it back up on their page. In response to the pushback, they wrote um, a response defending their song, claiming it was only tongue-in-cheek humor. But if you keep on reading their response, this is what they go on to say. This is what they wrote in response to the backlash that they received for making a song where they're saying, we're coming for your children. After decades of children being indoctrinated and taught intolerance for anyone who is other from using the Bible as a weapon to reparative therapy, it's our turn. That's what they wrote. And I don't have much doubt that that song will continue to play and people will continue to click and listen and many will continue to celebrate it, that this gay agenda is coming for our children. You see, in our thinking, we must be mature. We must understand what the spirit of the age is trying to deceive us with and start thinking like adults. And one may think that this is just a specific instance on tongue and the, church of, the church's lack of discernment on the matter. But this lack of discernment of not engaging the mind is huge. By calling to attention the Corinthians' misuse of tongue, Paul is showing thus that the whole being is childish. And if you are a child, you know what you can't do? You can't do anything that the adults can do. You can't work, make decisions, protect. You can't teach, build. Children don't do any of that. And that's what he is exhorting the Corinthians to do. Be mature in your thinking. Stop being childish and stop being deceived by every wind that will blow your way. And then he goes in verse 21, and the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. Here, Paul is getting to the crux of the matter 
on tongues. It is a sign. It is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Tongues are a sign for unbelievers. It's right there in this verse. If you want to know how to discern and what to make of this gift, if you want to know the purpose, here it is. It is a sign for unbelievers. And to make sense of it, Paul quotes, he says, from the law. By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. This is a paraphrasing from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 to 12. But after he quotes it, he says, thus or therefore, right? The understanding that tongues are a sign for an unbeliever then is drawn from the Old Testament. This isn't just some conclusion that he made up on his own. He's saying it's clearly shown in the Old Testament, and Paul references it when he shows the Corinthians the purpose of tongues. And if you have your Bibles, you can look at it with me, but I'll just quickly go over Isaiah 28. And in Isaiah 28, God is warning the nation of Judah which was the southern kingdom of Israel, that judgment is going to come upon them just like the northern kingdom received. Remember, the two kingdoms were split because, you know, Solomon and Rehoboam, and then the two kingdoms were split, but eventually they were so terrible, detestable in their practices, God gives over uh, in judgment the northern kingdom. And now the southern kingdom, Judah, which is supposed to be better, David's tribe is doing just as bad. And so Isaiah goes to find the leaders of Judah only to see them in a drunken stupor. In verse 7, it says, These reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. Everybody's drunk. Everybody's just walking around dazed, not sore, but just drunk, right? And not only that, it says in verse 7, the priest and prophet reel with strong drink. Even the people of God, the leaders of the nation, the people that are supposed to teach them about the law of God, even the priests and prophets are reeling with strong drink. Even they were drunk. And in verse 8, it says that the place where the leaders of Judah gathered was so disgusting because they were all drunk. There was vomit everywhere. And the picture that Isaiah is showing you is even on the tables, there was so much vomit that there was no room for anything else. That's the picture. That's what he's walking into with the message of God. And when he tries to give them the message, what happens? They laugh at him. They scorn him. He refers to them as scoffers in verse 14. Why? Because in verse 9, he says, to whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message? Those who were weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast. For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. That's what they're saying to him. He's saying, you're treating us like children. You're going precept by precept, law by law, line by line, word by word. And we resent you. They mock him because they think they're better than what Isaiah has to offer. You're going chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, word for word. It's 
so tedious. Who do you think we are, babies? And they reject his message. And God responds by saying what Paul just quoted. This is how God responds. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. Notice what Paul took out, the call to repentance and to turn back to God who gives rest. Why? Because it was a statement of judgment. God is telling the people of Judah that because they wouldn't hear the simple message of Isaiah, he is going to send judgment through a people whose language they wouldn't understand. Not only in Isaiah, but in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 49, in the Torah or the law, God clearly states the curse of not following him. It says, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like, an, like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. This is also repeated in Jeremiah 5.15. And so God is pointing out that when they were going to be judged, when they were going to be judged, there would be a sign. That sign was that they would hear a language that they would not understand. Now go to 1 Corinthians. Paul quotes it here saying that even in these cases, languages were assigned to the unbeliever that God was about to come in judgment. When Peter would give the proclamation of the gospel, it would have made sense to Jewish listeners that on the flip side, when you heard the languages being spoken, that the flip side of the gospel is judgment. It was made clear in the speaking of foreign languages right before the message Peter would give in Acts 2. All of this comes into play because then they were cut to the heart and they asked Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Because on the flip side of the gospel is what? It's judgment. And remarkably enough, remarkably enough, Jerusalem fell in 70 AD, just a few short years after the sermon was preached. But the church had already left Jerusalem. So if you believed in Christ, you already left Jerusalem because there was intense persecution that fell on the Christians in Jerusalem. So they couldn't stay there. They left. And in a matter of years, Jerusalem falls and they are all destroyed in 70 AD. But it was also because of this that the gospel was spread throughout the Gentile nations. We have become, we have become beneficiaries of the Christians being dispersed into the world from Jerusalem. So tongues is a sign. And as I've mentioned before, a sign points to something. Once you get there, you don't need the sign anymore. And it says, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. In the Greek, the word sign isn't there for that particular line. You know, in what we've read in verse 22, it says, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers, the word is a sign is not there. 
So in the Greek, it's just, and prophecy not for unbelievers, but for believers. Some translations now have the second word for sign in italics or brackets because you don't go from prophecy to anything. Like the sign pointing to something, you don't go from prophecy to anything. Prophecy is the thing that edifies. In verse 1, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophecy. We must proclaim the word of God. This is what the church desperately needs today. We do not need more egotistical, self-aggrandizing movements anymore. We need to serve one another with the gifts that we've been given and equipped by studying and preaching God's holy word. In verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Here Paul continues by giving the example. If the whole church comes together and everyone is speaking in tongues, and the people that don't know God enter, wouldn't they say, you are out of your minds? The six words, you are out of your minds, is translated from just one Greek word, which means raving lunatic. If someone comes in who doesn't know God and sees all of you speaking in this babble, he think you are raving lunatics. That's what Paul is saying. By all accounts, then, this sign of judgment was a sign that God gave his people that judgment was to come. And a Gentile would not have understood that sign. In fact, a Gentile walking in the doors of a place who would be shouting this gibberish, they would be confused because it's the exact same gibberish or ecstatic speech that he could just walk across the street to the temple of Diana and hear the same thing. Same thing here. You could just walk across the street and you could go to a Hindu temple and hear people who practice kundalini speak in the same exact manner. And an unbelieving Jew would also say the same thing. Even if he was supposed to understand it as a sign of judgment, it's not done in the meaningful way it was done in Acts 2. So Paul is saying, instead of everyone focusing on that, if all prophesy and an unbeliever enters, then it's the word of God that lays the heart bare and convicts us of our sin. The word of God unmasks us and the secret sins are made manifest. Then he will say, God is really among you. And that's what, we, that's what we want here, don't we? We don't want our fellowship to be this chaotic gathering that just blurts out whatever they want. We don't want chaos or confusion. We want to be obedient to the order that God has given us in his word. This particular gift was regulated and given for a specific time and purpose, and that purpose has passed. It has ceased. All of this points to our purpose then here. When we gather, when we prophesy, we point to God. Our service is the proclamation and reminder to all those that would enter 
that while the ultimate measure of evil is the wrath of God, a man named Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so it has now come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel message that you give us in your word. And we thank you that comprehensively, going all around, what we are now exhorted to do is turn to you in every fiber of our being, with every fiber of our minds as well, to listen and to be um, shaped and molded and changed by your holy word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, O oh Lord, to continue to humble ourselves before you and to be obedient, taking up daily our cross and following you. Let's take this time to pray. And let's pray that God would now not only encourage us by his word, but build us up by his word that we would no longer be children in our thinking, but maybe be mature, where when we gather, we would gather to glorify God in the way that pleases him in all of our lives, in all areas of our lives, that we would no longer be given into sin, given into worldly ideologies, but we would give ourselves completely to him. Let's take this time to pray.